Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion. Our concert began with an absolutely astounding piece by a juvenile composer, 20-year-old composer by the name of Morton Gould. And this piece has quite a story going along with it. You see, in 1933, when Morton wrote this piece, he was a 20-year-old kid who had already logged a few years in vaudeville and working at Radio City Music Hall as one of their pianists and sort of assistant music directors. And he just moved over to a newfangled kind of radio station in that new art form that was barely 10 years old or so of radio called the National Broadcasting Corporation, or NBC. And his job at NBC as a 19-year-old kid was to be assistant music director, pianist, conductor, put together of musical products. And mainly the way he described his job was he sat in a little cubicle at the top of the NBC building and he waited until there was some problem with the transmission for a show and a live announcer would say, and now here's Morton Gould to play the list Hungarian Fantasy Number no. 6. And he would jump over to the piano and start playing some unbelievable piece of music that he hadn't prepared to cover time while they got the program originally scheduled back on the air. Sometimes Sometimes it was minutes, sometimes it was hours, but it was really a trial by fire. And Gould, being a very ambitious young gentleman and quite a talent, uh, decided while he was there that he would compose some music, which I guess was part of his job. And so not wanting to seem like an overly modest person, he didn't just compose a little piece of music. He composed a fairly gigantic piece for two solo pianos and big symphony orchestra, about a 91-member orchestra, in the hopes that the radio conductor at NBC, Frank Black, would premiere his new piece. It turned out that for a number of reasons, Gould ended up soon thereafter moving on to another radio station, WOR, where he eventually uh, had his own radio show with his own radio orchestra and became quite a legendary figure in the 1930s, 40s, and into the 50s as a radio personality, as an orchestra leader on radio. And then when that next newfangled art form came in, the world of television, he was one of the very first classical concert artists to again have his own TV show with a live orchestra playing mainly his own arrangements of classical and popular tunes of the day. He was probably a little bit disappointed that NBC never played this piece, but he wasn't disappointed for very long because about two years later, he got a nice letter from a gentleman named Leopold Stokowski, then the conductor and music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra, saying, Dear Mr. Gould, I have received a score of your new piece, Chorale and Fugue in Jazz, and I find it quite fascinating and wonderful, and I'm planning to premiere it at uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra's subscription concerts next season on, I think it was January 7th, Uh, 1936. And so, in fact, Gould went down to Philadelphia and met with Stokowski, who, as you probably know, was quite an arranger and bit of a composer himself. Uh, And Stokowski, in typical period, egomaniacal conductor form, suggested a number of cuts to the young Gould, places where he thought that the piece needed some nips and tucks, being a a rather over-the-top juvenile effort, uh, even though it was quite an astounding effort at that. And Gould, being a, a very flexible young man of the theater already, very graciously acceded to all of Stokowski's suggestions. And so the piece was premiered in Philadelphia by Stokowski and the Philadelphians in 1936 in a cut version, which basically trimmed about a third of the piece off. 
Then it made the rounds. It was actually sort of Gould's breakthrough piece. It was played by a number of major orchestras and championed by a number of conductors uh, because it did such a wonderful job of sort of following in the footsteps of Gershwin's works, Rhapsody in Blue in particular, uh, trying to fuse jazz composition, this newfangled art form, with the classical orchestra. Now fast forward about 70 years to the present, uh, at which time the Albany Symphony and I are in the process of completing a disc of works by Morton Gould, generally early works, celebrating his connection to jazz music for the Albany Records label. And uh, as I started studying this work, first of all, the materials were in terrible shape because the piece hadn't been played in about 70 years. Uh, and second of all, the materials were in terrible shape because there had been all these cuts, first made by Stokowski and then additional cuts made by others. In fact, I even at the last moment managed to track down through a friend of mine in New Jersey, a great collector named Paul Snook, a cassette tape a dub, a copy of a radio dub that Paul had taken off the air in 1941 of Leon Barzan conducting the National Repertory Orchestra of some sort in the Chorale and Fugue in jazz. I was very excited. It's the only extant version that, that anyone knows of uh, of this piece, the only time it's ever been heard in the last 60 years or so. So I waited and waited and went to the mailbox every day to check, and finally the cassette came, and I listened to it on my old cassette player, and much to my horror discovered that while Stokowski had cut about a third of the piece, Barzin had cut about three-quarters of the piece. And so this was literally just the beginning, the chorale, the beginning of the fugue, and then he cut to the very end and left out the whole body of the piece. So what I began to realize, to make a long story short or a long story longer, is what we had on our hands was, in fact, the world premiere of the original version of this fantastic early Morton Gould piece that really was his breakthrough piece and uh, much loved, played, and admired in the 1930s. So that's what you're about to hear. It's the, dare I say, world premiere of the complete version of Morton Gould's very early work from 1933, The Chorale and Fugue in Jazz. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, with me, David Allen Miller, conducting. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was the very first performance ever, I dare say, of Morton Gould's breakthrough work, The Chorale and Fugue in Jazz, in its original form, played by the Albany Symphony with me, David Allen Miller, conducting. Next on our program, we welcomed one of our favorite guest artists as soloist. This is a young lady named Joyce Young, who's a recent winner, I think the 2005 Van Cliburn Award, a silver medal winner in the Van Cliburn competition. Uh, she had played with us first when she was a 17-year-old kid. I just had heard about her and heard that she was fantastic. We happened to have the same management. So I brought her to Albany, and she played the Rachmaninoff Paganini Rhapsody with us and did it wonderfully. So I invited her back a couple of years later to play the Prokofiev Second Concerto, and then she went off and won the Van Cliburn. And this is the first time we've had her back to the Albany Symphony since her triumphant achievement at Van Cliburn. Uh, she's playing Maurice Ravel's Piano Concerto in G Major. This is an incredibly beautiful piece, one of my all-time favorite works, particularly because of the slow movement. You know, the slow movement of this uh, concerto, it's a very concise, very succinct, rather brief concerto as the major concerti for piano go. But the slow movement begins with a solo piano passage that literally takes up almost half of the movement. Uh, and it's one of the most beautiful solo piano passages in all the concerto repertoire that I know. Strange also in that the left hand... Uh, exists in a kind of 6-8 time, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, while the right hand is really in 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. So you get this kind of 3 against 2 feel in the whole beautiful introduction to the slow movement. Uh, then at the end, this whole 
gigantic theme that the piano has sung at the beginning of the movement returns, only this time it's the English horn which plays the tune, with the piano doing gorgeous filigree around it. And it's uh, one of the great works in the English horn orchestral repertoire. Our English hornist Nat Fosner plays it quite beautifully. In addition, of course, there are outer movements, a very lively first movement and an even livelier last movement. The reason this piece is included on this concert inspired by jazz is because Ravel was very much, he himself said he was very much inspired by the example of George Gershwin in sitting down and writing this concerto in particular. He wrote two piano concertos, this one and a somewhat darker one, the piano concerto for the left hand, which is a somewhat more serious work. And this is a light, bubbly, brilliant piece. Ravel had gone to visit the U.S. in the late 20s and very much uh, wanted to meet George Gershwin, which he did, and was very much influenced by and impressed by Gershwin's jazz compositions, particularly the Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, they became great friends. And there's a famous story of Gershwin, who was always accosting the great composers he met, asking Ravel to give him composition lessons, and Ravel saying, Oh, Monsieur Gershwin, why would you want to write bad Ravel when you already write such good Gershwin? So they became great buddies, and Ravel went back to France and fashion this concerto initially for himself, but then, as he said, in 1931, you know, the piece turned out to be so hard late in his life as it was that he decided that he would just rather not play it. So a, a great friend of his did it in his place, and I believe he conducted the first performances, and it has become a, an, it became an instant classic and has stayed a classic ever since. So here now, Maurice Ravel's piano concerto in G major. The piano soloist is Miss Joyce Young, silver medalist in the Van Cliburn competition with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The podcast of Conductor David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The second half of our program began with another little-known, or dare I say completely unknown, Morton Gould Bonbon, in this case his third sinfonette for orchestra. Now, one of Morton's most famous pieces in the 1930s was his second sinfonette, uh, which has that famous second movement, the pavan, which was covered by all sorts of jazz and pop artists of the day and was really kind of Morton's biggest hit of the era. These pieces were written in the late 1930s, and they were written for Morton's radio program, and he had this funny idea about um, you know, writing little symphonies and little concertos. He said, in this era of dinettes and kitchenettes, why not have concertettes and symphonettes? And so he wrote four symphonettes, uh, three American symphonettes and one Latin American symphonette, and a number of concertettes, little concertos, uh, the most famous of which is, which is his uh, piano concertette, the interplay for piano and orchestra, which the Albany Symphony recorded a couple of seasons ago with Finley Cockrell, and which will be included on the same disc with this third American symphonette. The second symphonette had such incredible success that I think Morton decided he better just go right back to the well and try again. So the only danger one faces with this third symphonette is the challenge that movie directors face when they make, uh, you know, Jaws Part 7 or whatever it might be. Uh, it's the chance that the sequel may not be quite as radiant as the original item. It's true that no part of this third symphonette gained the kind of instant fame that the Pavan from the second symphonette had. But at the same time, when heard separately, it's a remarkably charming and disarming kind of piece. Uh, it's in four movements, fast dance band-inspired first movement, a kind of bluesy, slow, wonderful 
a second movement, a movement that's similar to the Pavan, a third movement kind of minuet, again featuring a muted trumpet as the soloist, and then a wildly fast, almost hoedown-like finale. It's a charming little piece that lasts barely 11 minutes. Here it is now, another piece that hasn't been heard probably in 65 or 70 years since it was played on the radio by Morton Gould and his orchestra, never before recorded but soon to be released by the Albany Symphony on Albany Records. It's Morton Gould's American Sinfonette Number no. 3. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Morton Gould's American Symphonette Number no. 3, and its first performance in probably 70-some years by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The final work on our program is a, a suite of music from a major work by arguably the greatest American composer of all times, George Gershwin. It's a suite from his opera, Porgy and Bess, his last great magnum opus, uh, and it's a suite that he himself put together. You know, when Porgy and Bess was first debuted, it wasn't a runaway overnight success. It, it was respectfully uh, received, and criticisms were sort of medium, lukewarm to warm, uh, and it had a number of performances, but it certainly didn't become the overnight classic that Gershwin hoped and expected it would, nor that it ultimately turned out to be. And so Gershwin, uh, ever trying to figure out how to best market his works, decided he'd put together a little suite of some of the highlights from the opera, an orchestral suite, and tour around with it, which he in fact did in 1936 through 1937. I believe he conducted the piece about 10 times. And it was exactly that, a suite of sections, mainly instrumental sections, from the opera, from Porgy and Bess. Interestingly, it's kind of laid out in a somewhat strange fashion in that in the first half of the suite, three of the most famous songs from the opera are featured. First of all, Summertime, then I Got Plenty of Nothing, with a banjo player taking over the vocal line, and finally Bess You Is My Woman Now. But strangely, the second half of the suite really does not occupy it with any of the hit song numbers from the show. It's more scenes from the second part of the of the opera, as well as the big hurricane scene where there's this terribly violent hurricane, as well as the, the scene in which Porgy finally kills the evil figure crown. And so it goes from being very concrete and very almost pop-like to being rather serious and very orchestral in timbre. And that may account for the fact that it's not played that often. The other reason is that in 1943, five or six years after Gershwin's death, uh, Robert Russell Bennett, one of Gershwin's favorite orchestrators, put together a suite of music from Porgy and Bess called Porgy and Bess, a Symphonic Picture. And that's kind of become the the basic orchestral suite that's usually played. It's a, a lovely piece, very Pops concert-oriented, and that it's real, just a, a hit parade of the big numbers from the show. It was only in 1957 that Ira even discovered this suite that Gershwin himself had made, which he then uh, sort of resuscitated and uh, titled Catfish Row to differentiate itself from the symphonic picture by Mr. Bennett. And it's also had a, a lovely life of its own. Uh, and it's kind of a difficult call. Now having done the two suites, I, I like them both very much. Bennett's is less authentic Gershwin, but a little more populist, whereas Gershwin's is really pure Gershwin, but maybe a little bit more severe. So we've opted to do the Catfish Row because we're real purists here at the Albany Symphony. And so how, now here, to close the Albany Symphony's performance inspired by jazz is George Gershwin's Catfish Row Suite from Porgy and Bess. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.